On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Well, thank you for the welcome. And a welcome to part six of this series on the life of Moses and particularly focused on encountering the living God. And what we've just had read to us was probably the most dramatic um, pyrotechnic encounter with God in the entire Bible. And it kind of begs a question which I want to unpack through this message. Who is this God that we're encountering? I mean, what is this God like if it's that kind of experience when we encounter him in person? I think uh, this 
question, what is God like, and your response to it become a very important dynamic. They, they become definitive for our lives, in fact. A.W. Tozer, uh, who's written many helpful books on this theme of the holiness of God, he says this, he says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And yet one of my frustrations, I don't know if you share this, is having encountered the living God and come to know him in person through Jesus Christ, I do get a bit frustrated with some of the stereotypes that people have who haven't known the real God. Is is that true for you as well? Do you have conversations where you think, oh no, that isn't really what God is like? I was speaking to someone at a tennis club recently and we were just talking and we got onto the fact that I was a Christian and immediately this lady said, well, I don't believe in God. And um, rather than just leaving it there, I asked her, well, well what God don't you believe in? <laughs> and she began to describe this God, uh, which I was therefore able at the end of it to say, well, I don't believe in that God either, right? That isn't the real God. So many false impressions of what God is like and what it might mean to encounter him. And two particularly come to mind that I want to set up as straw men and then knocked down in this sermon by looking at Exodus 19 that we just had read. The first is this impression that God is the sort of miserable Victorian. God the miserable Victorian. Have you come across this impression that that the God who is distant and removed is austere and strict and a bit nasty and cruel and so are his people? (laughs) Um, I I saw this uh, advert uh, or this poster, I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but um, this kind of sums up what maybe a lot of people think God and his people are particularly involved in in the world. I don't know if you can see that uh, poster, lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. If you can see those dear saints, to be honest, that comes as something of a relief. But, <laughs> but uh, the point is, is this the real God, just some kind of killjoy, you know? And the problem with that false impression of God is, of course, that if you have that view of God, you then imagine that he is some kind of terrible being that you wouldn't want to get anywhere near, some kind of headmaster, and you've been caught behind the bike shed smoking, and that's the dynamic you set up between you and God. Actually, we're going to see in this passage... Of course, God is not this Victorian, miserable being. He's a God of fiery, holy love. He's far more compelling and beautiful than that. So on the one hand, he's not the miserable Victorian, but then on the other hand, the other stereotype could be this. You can see now, on the, uh, hopefully on the screen, this other kind of idea. God, who is like this liberal-minded genie, right? On the one hand, you get the miserable Victorian stereotype. And on the other hand, you get this idea, and I think Western Christianity and Western culture has swung the other way to assuming if there is a God, he's some kind of genie in the skies who exists simply to help us find our better life. Now, of course, there's a semblance of truth in all of these errors, but the fact is that God is not to be reduced. As so often I think we do, he's not to be reduced This whole passage in Exodus 19 is saying, your God is not small. (laughs) Amen? Your God is awesome and mighty and holy and fearsome. And we mustn't shrink and shrivel God down to some kind of liberal-minded genie. And, And that's so often the other stereotype, that there's this God who, if he does exist at all, he just wants everyone to be happy. He'd never get angry about anything. And in fact, he's some kind of jilted lover who's just basically desperate for our attention. If he can get any of our attention, he's grateful, and otherwise he exists to make us happy. Listen, God is not your au pair, 
<laughs> He's not your PA, right? He exists in holy, 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 glorious power and might. And the problem with shrinking God down to some kind of liberal-minded genie, not only is it dishonoring to God, but it's actually damaging for us. Because there are moments in life where you don't value a small God, (laughs) where you actually need a big God. You need to recover a vision of the greatness of God. When we shrink God down to something small and merely a convenience God, God at our beckoned call, Actually, when we shrink God down to the liberal-minded genie, we open the door to a lot of anxiety in our lives. Our peace is proportionate to the greatness of our God. Amen? And the amount of anxiety in our culture is proportionate to the loss of a vision of the greatness of the living God. So if you want to escape the anxiety and the depression and the loneliness of life where the horizons have shrunk in our modern world, I want to invite you through Exodus 19 now to expand your horizons for the greatness of God. How great is our God? He's not the miserable Victorian. He's far more beautiful and loving than that. And he's not the liberal-minded genie. He's far more awesome than that. In fact, the headline for this message is simply this. God is so loving, we can trust him, And so great, we should fear him. And as we're going to see at the end, when we unpack these two and then bolt them back together again, something comes into our lives that has the potential to set us free and bring us joy. God is so loving, we can trust him. And so holy, so great, we should fear him. Well, Exodus 19 unpacks these two ideas in two phases of encountering the living God. Uh, Israel has been brought out of Egypt, remember the story, they were enslaved under the tyranny of Pharaoh who dehumanized them into mere machines. God swept in through Moses and brought them out through the Red Sea and the Passover and through the wilderness. And finally, Moses leads the people back to the very same mountain. Interesting this, notice the symmetry. They're now back at the same mountain where Moses was encountered by the burning bush. Only now he's back with the vast company of Israel and now it's their turn to have a similar kind of encounter with the living God as Moses had in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. And as this encounter unfolds, the first thing God wants them to know, point one, he wants us to know this as well, God is so loving we can trust him. You see, if you are an ex-slave, having been under the suppression and oppression of Pharaoh and the tyranny that dehumanized you into feeling that you were nothing, you could imagine you might have some trust issues, right? And the beautiful thing about this passage is God does not force himself on his people, but he offers himself to them in words of extraordinary intimacy and love. I don't know if you picked up on this, but Moses goes up on the mountain And Israel waits at the bottom, and God effectively says to Moses, before I actually come down and meet this people, I want you to send a message to them. It's almost like they're courting now, God and his people, dating, right? And, And first thing that comes from God is a love message. Effectively, he says to Moses, tell the people how I feel about them. If you've got trust issues today because you've experienced pharaohs in your life who've oppressed you and abused you and caused you to build castle walls around your soul to protect you from further hurts, listen, this is the real world we live in and the God of heaven comes today with a love message to you that says, let the drawbridge down, you can trust me. 
And this is the message that God brings through Moses. This is not the miserable Victorian. Listen to how God feels about his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. That is how God feels about his people. Three things, three beautiful metaphors God uses to capture the imagination of these dehumanized slaves in recovery and say, you can trust me. The first is, God compares himself to a mother eagle and Israel to this fragile, vulnerable eaglet. Imagine this scene. Picture this. Here is God and here is his people. This is how he feels. So motherly and protective of this vulnerable people. He brought them out of Egypt. When the predators were after them, God says, I swooped in. And on my wings, when you couldn't even fly, I carried you. When you thought you had nothing left, I lifted you up and brought you out. That is my love for you. I am the eagle. You are the eaglet. When you feel vulnerable and weak, and you feel like you've got nothing left and you can't go on, you will feel in God, you will encounter in God the one whose wings swoop under you and lift you up. There's a beautiful promise in Deuteronomy 33 that simply says this, God, the eternal God, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Isn't that beautiful? Don't some of us need to hear that right now? Because when we feel like we're falling and we're vulnerable, we need to feel, no, 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 there are everlasting arms beneath me. I, he's not going to let me fall. And then he switches the metaphor. Then he says in a different uh, scripture now, out of all of the nations, God goes on, this is still part of this love message, out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now this is a, a picture of a king. Imagine a monarch who has vast estates and land, rules over many nations, and all of it belongs to this king. And yet despite the wealth and the luxury and the multiple possessions the king has, there is one particular thing that he owns. Imagine some private collection of jewelry or something similar, and it's his treasured possession. And he is fiercely possessive of it, because maybe it was not, not necessarily because it's economically valuable. Maybe it's really not worth very much in itself, but maybe it was his father's or his grandfather's or it was passed down and it's his now and he treasures it and holds it tightly as part of his very being. And God effectively is saying to Israel, I want you to know that all the nations are mine, but you are treasured in my heart. You're my fiercely possessive treasure and I hold on to you and I look to you in a very different way to the way I look to everyone else. This is the language then of a parent. In fact, the Hebrew word for treasured possession, that's our English translation, but beneath it is the Hebrew word segula. Segula is now even a name, actually. I was in Israel just recently, and I heard uh, a girl be referred to, because actually it can be used by either gender, I heard a girl be called segula. It's a name that parents use because the meaning is treasured possession. And God looks at his people and says, you are my segula. You are my treasured possession. 
It's like the eyes of a parent that in the, in the busy playground is able to scan around many children and then locks onto the one that is theirs, their treasure in the world. I actually, um, I, I guess we all have nicknames for our kids if, we, if we're parents. Uh, one of our boys I, I call Pumba, uh, which is, um, if you've seen The Lion King, it actually means warthog, which isn't the most um, <laughs> flattering of... Uh, <laughs> but that goes back to our trip to Kenya. Anyway, the Pumba is one, but the more flattering one is I, I, my, my girl. I call her my treasure. That's how, when she comes in the room, I say, my treasure. And, and it's because it's the father's heart, right? You see, of, of, of all the girls in the world, here's mine. And this is God speaking to his people and saying, of all the peoples in the world, you are mine. You may not feel valued at work. You may feel slightly abused or taken for granted at home. But the God of heaven looks at these ex-slaves and says, despite your brokenness, you are my treasure and I'm fiercely possessive of you. And then finally, the final metaphor, God speaks about my covenant. Now this means he's not making a contract with them. He's declaring his love for them in marriage terms. And so imagine, final metaphor for God's love, imagine a man chooses carefully the spot and leads his woman there, and there he sinks down on one knee and proposes marriage to her, declares his undying love for her and says, I want you to be mine and I will be yours in an exclusive relationship. God has led Israel to this place And in effect, he gets down on one knee before them and says, I'm proposing nothing less than marriage. It's not just that I wanted to rescue you and then you go off and live your own life and I'll see you at the end. (laughs) No, 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 God says, I want to marry you. I want you to be exclusively mine and I will be yours. This is the God of heaven. I mean, this is not the miserable Victorian, amen? This is the God who says, I'm the eagle swooping under you. I'm the, the, the father and you're my segula. I'm the lover and you are my bride. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God has stooped down on one knee, if you like, even to death on a cross and purchased the ring with his own blood. And by the Holy Spirit, he comes to put the ring on our finger that we might be marked out as amongst all peoples, we're the people of God. What an incredible privilege. Amen. Despite our brokenness, he loves us and we are his segula and nothing's going to change that, his, his special treasure. Now, the point is, this is the love that God has for you and therefore despite the trust issues that we may feel, we can trust this God. Amen. We can open, we can let the drawbridge down and allow this God in. And of course, trust isn't merely a token thing. Trust isn't just saying, I trust you. But in Exodus 19, God goes on to speak about how he wants his people to respond. And he says this, now, obey me fully and keep my covenant. In other words, the trust that God's looking for is not merely that we say we trust him, but that we show it. I might ask you today, in fact, I am going to ask you today to to put your hand up if you trust me, right? You've seen enough of me over the years. So why don't you just put your hand up if you trust me right now. And I'm, I'm watching in the other centers as well. I'm seeing what's, there's, there's a few hands here. And the good news is uh, that the good news is hmm, that Carmel trusts me. Isn't that wonderful to know amongst many other people? But what does that actually mean that you put your hand up, right? How about we actually prove that Carmel trusts me? Would you like to see this happen? Yeah. Carmel, come up here now. Uh, let's give him a hand, shall we? God asks us to trust him, but not just in a token way, putting your hand up. Well done, Carmel. Come and stand here. We're going to prove that you trust me. 
but in a real way. Now, I'm going to actually blindfold you for this, because uh, otherwise it would be just a bit too easy. But I want you to know that you can trust me, my friend. Here we are, the blindfold's on, he can't see a thing. Sometimes we have to trust a God that we obviously can't see. We know his promises and his presence. And you can hear that I'm standing behind you right now, Carmel. And all I want you to do, you've seen this trust experiment. Do you think he trusts me? All I want you to do, when you're ready, we're going to count down. Three, two, one, and you've got to fall back. Oh. He trusts me. He trusts me. Now, I know he does trust me, but I just want to push this a little bit further because now standing in front of him and uh, therefore unable to catch him, I'm going to nevertheless ask him to fall back and trust me. This is quite a challenge, isn't it, don't you think, for Carmel? Sometimes we can see what God's up to when he says, trust me. And other times, we don't know what God's up to, and he still says, trust me, right? And so I say to you, Carmel, trust me, and on the count of three, fall back. You ready for this? Three, two, one. Oh, fair play. Round of applause. Carmel, look at what I'd lined up for you there. Was he ever... Was was that guy ever going to let him fall, right? A monster in the house. But we... uh, we <laughs> God has the most unbelievably powerful arms, and we nevertheless have to fall back into them. It isn't just faith to say, yes, in theory, I trust God. It is faith to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I fall back into you. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. Lean back into God's plan for your life. And for some of us today, I really felt this. We've got some trust issues. We felt hurt in the past, but today is our day to let the drawbridge down to a God who says, underneath you are my everlasting arms, you are my segula, my treasure, now trust me with your life, in Jesus' name. God is so loving we can trust him, and, not but, but and, he is so great we should fear him. The the story in Exodus 19 turns a corner from God declaring his love for Israel to God then coming down and displaying his greatness before Israel. And these two seem to be to us in contradiction, but as we'll see, in fact, they're not. When you bring them together, they are a combination that actually can transform our lives. When we get to see not only the love of God, but the greatness of God and pull those together in our lives, it's the most powerful combination. That the God who says, you are my segula, my special treasure, is also the God who shakes the mountain and splits the rocks. And this is what happens on Mount Sinai. Did you hear it in the language? God comes down on the mountain. Having sent the love message, he then turns up. And when God turns up, it all starts to blow up. (laughs) The mountain, granite Mount Sinai. You can see a picture of it here. This is a solid, robust mountain in the Middle East. And the whole thing begins to shake. Fire begins to come down on the mountain. Rocks split. A trumpet sounds. It's as if all of creation begins to melt and quake as the creator arrives. And these physical demonstrations, the rocks splitting, the pyrotechnic eruptions, the trumpet sounding, are all physical ways of capturing this simple reality. The God that has proposed marriage to Israel is not the liberal-minded genie. He's not some little sky fairy. He is so great and awesome, Israel should simultaneously trust him and revere him. For he is almighty God. 
Despite and in the light of his great love for us, we can not only trust him, but revere him in the way we live our lives. In other words, this display of power on the mountain is causing Israel to ask the question, how great is our God? It's a question that's hard to answer, isn't it? I don't know about you, I find it difficult to comprehend the greatness of God, but one of the most helpful ways, actually the way the Bible invites us at times, is to consider the stars. Have you ever thought about the greatness of God in terms of the vastness of this universe? Psalm 8 says, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers. Now notice the language there. The finger work of God is the universe that now science is unpacking in its vastness. Isn't that extraordinary? How big is a God for whom this enormous universe is finger work? The work of your fingers. Think of it this way. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, Imagine we shrunk it down to the size of North America, right? The entire continent of North America is our galaxy, the Milky Way. Our solar system, the sun and the planets that orbit around it, if our galaxy was North America, would be the size of this coffee cup. And Earth would be a little bubble inside it spinning around our sun, and we would be, well, a speck. on that planet in the light of one of billions of galaxies and it's all finger work to our God. How great is our God? Amen. And Israel in the fire and the power and the demonstration of glory is experiencing an encounter with a God who is to be trusted but not trifled with. Now, I know some of us might be thinking all this, this, suddenly this message has turned into sort of fire and brimstone, right? And isn't this the way people use religion to frighten people and control them? And anyway, isn't this the Old Testament? We're not in the Old Testament anymore. Listen, actually, I get that point, right? And I understand that it can, sometimes with our Bibles, it does seem like the God of the Old Testament has changed in the New Testament. And that people think like this. I heard one teenager sum up this idea really rather well, that the Old Testament is what God was like before he became a Christian. <laughs> Which <laughs> is a brilliant but flawed theory, right? God has not changed. The God that we are worshipping today, we have come into the presence of exactly the same holy, holy, holy God who came down in fire and power on Mount Sinai. The only reason there aren't pyrotechnic eruptions today here is because of the blood of Jesus. That's the only thing that's changed. It's not God that's changed, but the covenant has changed through blood shed on the cross. Notice when he died on the cross, the darkness fell on him. The earthquake came on him. The rock split. It's like Mount Sinai eruptions on the Son of God as he died in order that the righteous judgment of God may be carried by him. And through his blood, we might find peace with God. So instead of pyrotechnic eruptions, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he's the same God. He is the same powerful, mighty, and glorious God. And he is not to be trifled with. In fact, if you do read the New Testament, you'll notice that there are some clues that we should still have a holy reverence before God. Paul says some people have taken communion in a way that was dishonoring to God. And they've got sick and some have even died. Indicating these are holy things that we handle. Don't mess about with God. 
Of course, he is fiercely loving, but he is also holy and great. We were reading through the New Testament, my son and I, and we read the passage with Ananias and Sapphira. And I won't go into the details, but my son, who as they are struck down by disobeying and lying to the Holy Spirit, my son just having read some of the Old Testament, he said, oh, this is a bit Old Testament, he says. But it's in the New Testament as a little reminder, love God, trust God, but don't play games with God. He is to be, in the right and holy and healthy sense, he is to be feared. In fact, Hebrews 12, picking up on this Exodus 19 passage, says this, so let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Notice that, we should worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because he's still the consuming fire of Exodus 19. But we get to come much closer than they ever got. We get to come through the blood of Jesus to holy places where even angels would fear to tread. And we are here. (laughs) And yet we should not become complacent of these things. He's so loving we can trust him. He's so great we should fear him. Now what does this practically mean? Well, I think it, uh, worshiping God acceptably with reverence and awe at least means that we should prepare our hearts to meet with God. Notice Israel spent three days getting ready to encounter God. If you were to go to see the queen, you'd have an etiquette class before you could approach her majesty, or more to the point, to learn that your ma- her majesty approaches you, right? Well, how much more if we're coming before the king of kings, we should prepare our hearts, We should not rush into his presence in a complacent way. And for those of us who are brand new to the Christian faith, brand new to church, often when you're new to it, these things seem obvious. I don't know that, I can't count the number of people who have come to church for the first time from a broken background and they never actually made it into the church. They were so fearful that they stayed in the car park and, and couldn't pluck up the courage to come in. I know many people like this because in their minds to come into the holy presence of God is a fearful thing. But it's often those of us who've been doing it for many, many years, that's where the complacency kicks in, right? That's where we can become a bit over-familiar with what we're doing here. We are on holy ground. We are touching holy things. And therefore we should worship God with reverence and awe. I personally find a few things here. I find posture matters for me. I tend to prefer to pray when I pray on my knees. Just because there's something about this posture that communicates to me I'm in a holy place right now. I'm praying to Almighty God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I would that men would lift up holy hands in prayer. There's something about how we embody a posture of reverence and awe. Amen? Try it. It's a good thing. It's actually a really healthy thing for a human being to come to fall to their knees, to surrender to a place where we're saying, God, you are God and I'm not. You're in control and I'm not. You're the one who deserves worship and adoration, not me. I surrender to you. Our posture matters. I I would even say our vocabulary matters. How we speak to God should convey a sense of awe and wonder. I'll never forget my friend becoming a Christian from a completely non-Christian background. One of my best mates at university, still brilliant friends. And um, I'll never forget the first time he prayed because the Spirit of God had come into him as he gave his life to Jesus. And he actually sunk to his knees spontaneously. That just seemed to be almost an instinct for this completely otherwise non-Christian guy. 
And as he prayed, the opening words of his prayer were, Holy Father. That was his address to God. The first prayer he ever prayed, Holy Father. And it struck me that it was actually a lovely combination of intimacy, Father, and reverence, Holy It was only later that I realized in John 17, that's how Jesus addressed the Father. You can read his prayer, and in that prayer, he prays, Holy Father. And I thought to myself afterwards, gosh, if even Jesus kept that sense of reverence in his human existence by speaking to the Father as holy, maybe we ought to as well. In our posture, in our vocabulary, we should worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen? We are on holy ground. Let us not rush in and rush out. Let us worship God with reverence and awe. God, on the one hand then, is so loving we can trust him and so great we should fear him. And what I want to do to finish this message is bolt these two back together again. We've unpacked them in two instances in this story. I believe it's when you bring them together that you experience the power of it in this sense. When we understand the greatness of God... The one who flung stars into space. That's mere finger work for him. But then we understand that that God died on a cross for us. How loved are we? (laughs) When the greatness of God is measured down into the sacrifice of God through Jesus, we begin to comprehend how secure am I? If the God who for whom the stars are finger work, looks at me and says, you are my segula, I have nothing to fear. Amen? The take-home that I want us to take out from this message, the take-home is simply this. Listen to this and think this one through. If we live in the fear of the Lord, you have nothing left to fear. If you live in the fear of the Lord, you have nothing left to fear. If this God is for you, who can be against you? If you're his segula, if underneath you are the everlasting arms, if he's proposed a covenant of undying marriage love to you, how secure are you in the world? This is what the psalmist picks up on so often in his psalms. Psalm 25, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? (laughs) The Lord is my stronghold, of whom do I need to be afraid? If the God for whom the stars are finger work is the God who is by my side watching over me, I have nothing left to fear. We need to recover in a culture riddled with anxiety. We need to recover a vision for the greatness of God and realize that that great God looks at us and says, you're my segula and declare confidently, well, then I have nothing left to fear. God is so loving, we can trust him. And so great we should fear him. And when we pull those two together, we can walk into this world with all of its challenges, with nothing left to fear. Let me put it this way to finish. Imagine this to be an image that you take into your week. If you had to pass through a very dangerous jungle, but you get to go through it riding on the back of a mighty lion, as you pass through the dangerous jungle, what is the only thing you need to fear? The lion, right? (laughs) No one's going to touch you if you're riding on him. The only thing you need to fear is the lion. As you go into this week, the only thing you need to fear is almighty God. But if you are his segula, riding on his back, there is nothing in the jungle left to fear. For our God is with us. He's so loving we can trust him. And he is so great we should fear him. 
Amen.